Blog Talk Radio. Brooklyn, New York. 
giving us a little education through rap. He figures however he can reach the children, he wants to reach them, and I thank him for it. Well, welcome, everybody, to a special, a special early morning Our Own Voices live show. And I say a special because normally we come on at 12.30 p.m. on Saturday afternoon, but I just couldn't get there. But I couldn't, I just couldn't sleep without talking about, well, just come out and say it, Rosa Parks. The show today is, or this morning, is about Rosa Parks. And as many of you know, December 1st, which is now yesterday, was, I believe, the 63rd anniversary of Rosa Parks on that bus saying she was not getting up. And the reason why this is important is because many historians attribute that action, Rosa Parks sitting on that bus as the catalyst for what at the time was the modern day civil rights movement. Heck, I think we need a civil rights movement today. But it was 63 years ago, uh, December 1st, 19, uh, somebody help me out. I believe it was 19, was it 1955 or I believe 1958 when Rosa Parks uh, sat on that bus and led to many of The Jim Crow laws, actually technically all of the Jim Crow laws, uh, to be pretty much eliminated. And it was uh, December 1st, 1955. Uh, It was a major moment in American history. It was a major moment in African-American history. And to be quite honest, it was a major moment in world history because it was observed internationally and it really spoke to a lot of the ills not just going on in America but that were going on in South Africa and other places that's right December 1st 1955 I titled it least uh, a part of it was least we forget Because it's something that we shouldn't forget, and we should always tell the story. Because once we stop telling the stories, we for sure will forget. I heard it on Franklin Burley's radio show on Power 88 KCEP FM uh, Friday. And he played a speech, uh, not a speech, but an interview, not long after the incident had happened. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do a radio show on. It was just a matter of would I get the time. Well, it's not the time that I would like to have done it, but it is time because once this is recorded, you can listen to it as a podcast whenever you like. And I think you all need, we need to hear the story of Rosa Parks in her own words. And that's a part of what you're going to receive this morning, and whenever you tune in to listen to it, you'll get to hear Rosa Parks' story 
in her own words. So before we go on any further, let me tell you a little bit about who we are, what we do. So this is Our Own Voices Live. I am your host, Rodney Smith, and the title of our show today is Rosa Parks, the Catalyst for the Civil Rights Movement. You could give us a call at 347-826-9600, 347-826-9600, to listen in on your computer, your cell phone, or by dialing that same number and press pound one. That's right. Press option one on your keyboard and or on your phone, and that will give you an opportunity to uh, speak with us and share your thoughts and opinions on Rosa Parks. There are probably many people who may not know who Rosa Parks is. We're going to tell you about that today, 347-826-9600. A little bit about who we are. Uh, Our Own Voices Live is a radio show featuring people and stories from our community in Las Vegas, the surrounding area, and someplace near you. America is the greatest country on earth due to its cultural diversity and not in spite of it. Our mission is to help bridge the culture and ethnic divide in America by working together to build the greatest bridge in history to unite us. And some of the ways that we do that is with shows like Our Own Voices Live, the blog talk radio show, and it's also podcast. You can find it on iTunes and other popular podcast platforms. Uh, you can find it on Our Own Voices Live on Facebook, Our Own Voices on Facebook, also Our Own Voices on Twitter. And you can find Our Own Voices live. Uh, some other things that we do is we do a weekly gathering, normally at the West Side Bistro, located at 710 West Lake Mead Boulevard inside the Culinary Training Academy. Once again, that is the gathering at the Culinary Academy in, at the West Side Bistro, 710 uh, West Las Vegas Boulevard. That's every Friday from 12 to 2. And it's a way to introduce people, get to know one another. And once we get to know one another, maybe we can move forward together. So that's what we do on Fridays. We also have a reading club, Our Own Voices Reading Club, that meets every Wednesday at 4 to 6. That time may slip a little bit soon to about 5 or 5.30, just so we can make sure that the folks who are working uh, will be able to attend. Someone has suggested that to me. See, I do listen. We also do the third Thursday of each month. Uh, we go to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King uh statue here in North Las Vegas, right where North Las Vegas and Las Vegas intersect at Cary and Martin Luther King Boulevard. And we clean up around the statue and that's at 10 o'clock in the morning. And of course, the Saturday before Dr. King's birthday in January, we do the annual Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. candlelight vigil. And this will be our 11th year. And we do other things, computer drives, uh, book fairs, and book giveaways. We're try, we try to stay actively engaged in the community because by connecting people together, we think that that's how we can move together. So once again, this is Our Own Voices Live. I am your host, Rodney Smith. And the topic of our show today is the Rosa Parks, the catalyst for the civil rights movement. So I don't want to do a whole lot of talking this morning because I want you to hear in her own words uh, some more information about Rosa Parks in this show. As uh, I said, least we forget is a phrase often used for military remembrances. It is associated with Armistice Day, which we now call Veterans Day. 
uh, December 1st, 1955, is another day that is of such importance that it too deserves the phrase, least we forget. That is the day that Sister Rosa Parks decided to not take unfair and unlawful treatment while riding a public bus in Montgomery, Alabama. This is the person, the date, and the event that many historians attribute to be the catalyst to the beginning of what we call the modern-day civil rights movement. Now yesterday, about 63 years ago, Rosa Parks, somewhat unassuming, all five foot three inches of her, the, the descendant of, I believe, Scottish and Irish people, but her great, I believe his great-grandmother had been a Native American slash African slave in this country. That wasn't that long ago for her. Maybe for us now, it seems like a long time ago, but for Rosa Parks, that really wasn't that long ago. So I wanted to say, least we forget, because really when you think about the existence of America, many of these things really didn't happen that long ago. After all, the country really isn't that old. We are a young country. So many of these, what we call historical events, well, they're not that that old. It was actually her great-grandmother was a Native American slave. I believe they were Creek and is uh, what Rosa Parks' ancestry was, Native American and African at the time who were slaves. That's who Rosa Parks came from. Now, Rosa Parks lived to be 92 years old. Thank God. We had her around a good portion of my life. She passed in October 24th, 2005, at 92 in Detroit, Michigan. And for those of you who may live up in Detroit or around that area, take a visit there, you can go visit her gravesite at the Woodlawn Cemetery in Detroit. Rosa Parks. There's a lot of stuff that I could tell you, but I really think the best thing for you all to do is to listen to her tell the story in her own words. Now, this came about not because Rosa Parks was the first one to sit on a bus. There were others who did it prior to her. But it was something about Rosa Parks, and I believe Dr. King listed Rosa Parks as not only just a good woman, a good African-American good woman, or as they would say back in the day, a good Negro woman, and maybe of the whole town that she lived in, he said she was just one of the best women in that town, Montgomery, Alabama, but from Dr. King. 
Rosa Parks had rolled this bus many times. She had even protested in her own way before this happened, uh, roughly about, I think, 10 years before this happened. See, here's how the laws went, just for those of you who may not know about Jim Crow. I grew up in the Jim Crow South. If you got on a bus, you and this law passed in Montgomery, Alabama, I believe in like 1900. Uh, it really started going in the South around 1898. Uh, this was one of those things that happened partially because of the insurrection or coup d'etat of Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. That started a cascade effect of Jim Crow laws throughout uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, all of North Carolina, and eventually throughout the whole South. And in 1900, it hit Montgomery, Alabama at least this specific set of law. And what it says, it, it was basically a segregation. You couldn't ride the buses, blacks and whites, couldn't ride them together. And if you did, the black people had to ride in the back of the bus. Now, they could ride in the middle of the bus, but they surely could not ride in the front of the bus. One of the reasons why this is so significant is because about 70, 70 to 75% of the bus riders in Montgomery, Alabama, happened to be black. They had a small number of seats towards the back of the bus that was, which was aft of the door. So we're talking about roughly 12 to 14 seats of the bus that African Americans could ride, could sit. Now at the front of the bus, roughly the first, oh maybe six seats for sure, and it could go back as, as far as uh, I think eight seats maybe even back as far as 12 seats. White people rode. They, re- they primarily rode in the first six to eight because there wasn't that many of them, right? And they were set aside. The interesting thing about this is the bus drivers had the authority to determine where the black people would sit and where the white people would sit. It wasn't like it was painted on the seat all right, just these seats are white people. It wasn't like those seats were painted white. No, the bus driver actually had a painted sign that he could arbitrarily move to wherever he liked. So, for example, let's say the first six to eight seats weren't enough. Maybe there was 10 to 12 white passengers on the bus. Well, the areas that was normally set aside for black people would be adjusted by the bus driver by his whim, and he could go and put that placard uh, back a little further and tell the the black people they had to they had to move back. White people couldn't stand on the bus. There were black people in seats, even if it wasn't in the designated white area. Now, what's unique about this is that the law, the actual law, did not stipulate that the bus driver could arbitrarily move it. What it basically said was the bus driver was responsible for ensuring that the reserved seats for white passengers did not have Negroes. The other stuff about rearranging the placard, all of that, that was something that the bus driver, bus drivers did. Now, this is a very important thing because before there were buses, there used to be trolleys. And for those of you who know history, bus the trolley drivers, I'm not sure about the bus drivers in, in Montgomery, but the trolley drivers 
could actually carry firearms to enforce segregation or whatever they wanted to enforce, especially with black people. So the bus drivers had an inordinate amount of authority, but they actually took the authority beyond what the law says because the law was just that the front section of the bus had to be set aside for white people. One of the other things that the bus driver did, and this is when Rosa Parks did her first sort of silent protest, was bus drive, bus passengers boarded through the front of the bus. For those of you who come from some of the, well, pretty much buses all over now. But you would board through the front of the bus and you would pay the bus driver at the front of the bus. But for black passengers, for black, you would then, after you paid the bus driver, you would have to exit the bus, then walk towards the rear door, which is typically where passengers would exit. And then you had to re-enter the bus through the back door. So you already entered the bus, so to speak, through the front door to pay. Then you would have to get off and go to the back door to get on the bus to sit in the back. Well, one day Rosa Parks didn't feel like doing that anymore. So she paid her fee, and she went to go and into the bus and sit down. The bus driver basically asked her what she was doing. And now that bus driver that left her, just happened to be the same bus driver that she had said that she would never ride with again. And if that meant that she had to walk, which sometimes she did, but on this particular rainy day, and it left her in the rain, I might add. Well, on this particular day, some 10, 13 years later, I believe, Rosa Parks gets on the bus and doesn't recognize that it's the same driver who had left her in the rain that she said she would never ride with again. And she gets on the bus and she's finds a seat on the bus. And after she finds the seat on the bus, there are vacant seats. So there are seats where white people could sit down. But unfortunately, more white people got on the bus than there were seats. And the bus driver, that bus driver that left Sister Rosa Parks in the rain, asked the black passengers to relinquish their seats for the white passengers. Now, mind you, it wasn't that black people paid any less. They paid the same thing. But that same bus driver that had once left Rosa Parks in the rain had asked her and the other passengers who were sitting in what was legally the seats for them to sit in to leave, to go and sit in some seats in the back. Now, the first time they asked, the bus driver asked, they didn't move. But the second time, you know, he asked, told them, and they moved. Now, the seats that were available, there were enough seats available that the white passengers could sit down. But black passengers weren't really supposed to eyeball white people, not look at them. As a matter of fact, if there was a seat in the, what was the black area, 
but a black person had to get up because there was a white passion that needed that seat. Well, the seat sort of faced, you know, when you sit down, you face one another in some of the seats. So your back would be towards your immediate window and you would be looking across. And of course, the person who was sitting on the other side of the bus was looking at you. Well, because black people weren't allowed to look at white people and especially couldn't look at, look at them in the eye. And they, I guess they didn't want white people to look at black people. If there were two if there was an empty seat in the black section that a white person sat down in and there was a black person sitting across from them in the black section, but sitting across from the black person would have to get up, vacate that seat so that they couldn't look at the white person. The white person wouldn't have to look at them. That's the Jim Crow South. That was a part of segregation. So for people who say, that segregation was okay, and this is for black people too. This is just a taste of what it was like. Now, for those of you who work long days, imagine you getting, you're getting on the bus. There's no other seats available in the black section. You're sitting in the black section. There's maybe a white person that gets on the bus, no more white seats, and they sit in that first open seat, usually in the center, but it was facing across at you, you would then have to get up. And if there were no other seats in the rest of the bus, you would then have to stand up. If there was no standing room on the bus, you would have to exit the bus. In other words, you paid your money for a seat. But because white people got on the bus, you would have to give not only give up your seat, but if the bus was packed so much, you would actually have to get off the bus. No, there was no money refund. So it could cost you more money because then if you wanted to get home, you had to walk or you had to spend money to ride another bus. You didn't get like a transfer ticket. Segregation. That was in the Jim Crow South. So I want to play for you all this in Sister Rosa Parks' own words so you can hear it from her and know it for yourself. Here we go. Home December 1st, 1955, about 6 o'clock in the afternoon. I boarded the bus downtown Montgomery on Coach Square as the bus proceeded out of town on the third stop the white passengers had filled the front of the bus when I got on the bus the rear was filled with uh, colored passengers and they were beginning to stand the seat I occupied was the first of the seats where the Negro passengers uh, take as they on this route. The driver noted that the front of the bus was filled with white passengers and there would be uh, two or three men standing. He looked back and asked that the seat where I had taken, along with three other persons, one in the seat with me, and two across the aisle was seated. 
he demanded the seat that we were occupying. The other passengers very reluctantly gave up their seats, but I refused to do so. I want to make very certain that it is understood that I had not taken a seat in the white section, as has been reported in many cases. An article came out in the newspaper on Friday morning about the Negro woman overlooked segregation. She was seated in the front seat, the white section of the bus, and refused to take a seat in the rear of the bus. That was the first newspaper account. The seat where I occupied we were in the custom of taking this seat on the way home, even though at times on this on the same bus route we occupied the same seat with white standing if their space had been taken up, the seats had been taken up. I was very much surprised that the driver at this point demanded that I remove myself from the seat. The driver said that if I refused to leave the seat, he would have to call the police, and I told him, just call the police. He then called the officers of the law. They came and placed me under arrest. Violation of the segregation law of the city and state of Alabama and transportation. I didn't think I was violating any. I felt that I was not being treated right and that I had a right to retain the seat that I had taken as a passenger on the bus. The time had just come when I had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. They placed me under arrest. And I wasn't afraid. I don't know why I wasn't, but I didn't feel afraid. I, I had decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen, even in Montgomery, Alabama. And I was bond bailed out shortly after the arrest. The trial was held December 5th on the next Monday, and the protest began from that day, and it is still continuing. And so the case was appealed. From the time of the arrest on Thursday night and Friday and Saturday and Sunday, the word had gotten around over Montgomery of, of my arrest because of this uh, incident. There were telephone calls from those who knew about it to others. The ministers were very much interested in it, and we had our meetings in the churches. And being the minority, we felt that nothing could be gained by violence or threats or belligerent attitudes. We believe that more could be accomplished through the nonviolent passive resistance. And people just began to decide that they wouldn't uh, ride the bus on the day of my trial, which was uh, Monday, December 5th. And Monday morning, when the buses were out on their regular run, they remained empty and people were walking are getting rides and cars with people who had picked them up as best they could. On Monday night, the mass meeting at the Hope Street Baptist Church had been called, and there were many thousand people there. They kept coming, and some people never did get in the church. There were so many. 
I was not the only person who had been mistreated and humiliated. I have uh, been refused uh, entrance on the buses because I would not pay my fare at the front and go around to the rear door to enter. That was the custom if the bus was crowded up to the point where the white passengers would start occupying. I hadn't thought that I would be the person to do this. It hadn't occurred to me. Others had gone through the same experience, some even worse experience than mine, and they all felt that the time had come that they should decide that we would have to stop supporting the bus company until we were given better service. And the first day of remaining off the bus had been so successful, it was organized in that uh, we wouldn't uh, ride the bus until our request had been granted. Just think about that. Simply wanting to ride the bus after a hard day's work, and you're not allowed to. And the thing about it is you heard. It wasn't that she broke the law, even the Jim Crow laws, which I believe were unconstitutional in the first place. So I want to just reiterate, it was about the first three, six, it was the first 10 seats of the bus that were set aside. Once you got past that, the rest of the seats were for anybody. And you heard her say that. According to the rules, if the bus was packed, nobody had to give up the seat, right? So they call them conductors, basically bus bus drivers. They were empowered to assign the seats to achieve this, this segregation goal, law. And the way it went was the passion would be required to move or give up their seat and stand if the bus was crowded and no other seats were available. So you got a crowded bus, maybe there's black and white people on the bus, white people get on the bus, there's no place for them to sit down other than those 10 seats up front. They sit in those 10 seats up front, the 11th white person get on the bus, just has to stand up. That's, that's what the law was. But the custom in Montgomery, however, and this is the practice that the bus drivers just took on their own, would require black riders to move when there were no white-only seats left. So when those 10 seats were up, it didn't make any difference how crowded the bus was, and they did. And it sort of reminded me of, of a quote uh, from Frederick Douglass. And he talked about when people oppress you and how they will continue to oppress you. He says, power concedes uh, nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. And here's the part. He says, find out just what any person will quietly submit to. Read it again. Find out just what any person will quietly submit to and you have found out the exact amount of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. 
So in other words, as long as people will submit to another group of people, the other group of people expect them to submit and will enforce their submittal. And he says that this injustice, he says, and these things will continue till they are either resisted with either words or blows or with both. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. We need to remember that in today's world, is that we are oppressed by whatever degree that we will allow it to happen to us. There's a message in that for people all over the world, and yes, for people right here in America. You don't have to stand for that oppression. As a matter of fact, Sister Rosa Parks took a seat and said she wasn't standing for it no more. And that changed the course of history. Let me give a quick station ID. You're listening to Our Own Voices Live. This is Rodney Smith in the air chair. And our topic today is Rosa Parks, the catalyst for the civil rights movement. And so how she became a catalyst, because remember, she was an honorable woman. She was, you know, she was married. Husband had a job. She had a job. Worked in the church, AME church. She uh, worked with the local NAACP office. She wasn't, they said there was nothing that they can say. Because oftentimes they'll always come up and say something about someone who supposedly broke the law is that they broke the law and this is not normal for them and so forth and so on. No, this was an upstanding woman who decided to sit down on that bus. She wasn't going to take it anymore. And she wasn't going to be mistreated anymore. And if you remember from her firsthand account, she said she didn't violate the law. She followed the law. She even moved over a seat that she didn't have to move over. She did that. But that bus driver still wanted her to get up or wanted her to leave the bus and call the cops. And when he threatened her with calling the cops, you remember what she said? Call them then. I don't know if that's a good thing to do today because it's just as bad, if not worse today, as it was back then. And they came and they arrested her. And I posted some pictures up of it. And, you know, before that, there had been Emmett Till. And Rosa Parks worked on bringing attention to that case. There were other cases that had happened at that time that Sister Rosa Parks had worked on. But it, and she knew, she remembered how the police officer got freed on Emmett Till. She knew that. And she was just full and decided she wasn't going to take it anymore. You know, Rosa Parks, for her day, was an educated woman. That's right. She finished high school. She finished high school. 
Not too many black people would finish high school, especially black women, but she did. She was an educated woman. The people she worked for had even sent her to get training. These are white people. They had even sent her to get training on how to resist and do it peacefully. So she had experience in these things. And the reason why I mentioned the white people is because just like in slavery times, there were sympathetic whites to blacks. All white people just didn't go around living their genteel life, ignoring what they were seeing with their own eyes. Abolitionists stood up, white abolitionists, fought and died for black people. That has been the history of black people in this country. Many say black people should be able to get the rights and freedoms that they deserve on their own. But we're a very small percentage of the population. We don't have weapons, control governments, for the most part. So we're at the whim of the people who are in charge with the authority, with the guns. There's too many. But there's always been sympathetic white people who have helped black people from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement. When you hear them talking about Schroner and Cheney, you know what you, you have to realize is some of those white people, Jewish people, could have gotten by, but they didn't. Today, we need abolitionists. No, it's not really slavery technically, but we need abolitionists today. And we need sympathetic white people today, not because we're just people that don't want freedom, but because there are people, even though laws have changed, that still administer those laws, they had never changed from the Jim Crow South. So brothers and sisters that may be listening, don't turn away help if it's offered, if it's truly help. And if there's people willing to collaborate with you, let them collaborate, because that's really the spirit of this country. Some of the oppression that is happening in this country is antithetical to not only the Constitution, but to the Declaration of Independence that those founding fathers issued to England before this country was America. There was someone who helped Rosa Parks then. As a matter of fact, later in life, believe it or not, the guy who owned Little Caesars paid for her. You know, I want to give another little anecdotal story here because eventually Rosa Parks lost one of her jobs from the pressure. She had got death threats and she basically left town. She went and taught at Hampton University for a while and then she had family in Detroit and she moved to Detroit and one of the things she noticed in Detroit, because that's a northern city, right? A lot of black people in Detroit. She noticed that there was the, these, uh, that segregation was just as bad there, if not worse, than it was in the South. It's just done differently. The housing projects 
those types of things. And, you know, when you segregate it against it, don't make a difference where it happens. It still makes you feel the same. And when you go to a place where there was freedom in the north, right, and you think that people thought of you as okay, and, of course, their descendants would think you're okay. But then when you go there and you think you're escaping and you go to the north and you find out that it's just as racist and just as prejudiced, that people are just as bigoted in the north as they were in the south. That's what Rosa Parks went to in Detroit. But she found work. And she found work as a secretary, which is what she did for the NAACP for about 13 years, for Representative Conyers, John Conyers. As a matter of fact, you can even say, and this doesn't get talked about enough, that she helped John Conyers get elected. He was relatively unknown politician at the time. And she convinced her fellow civil rights activists the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to come to Detroit and endorse candidate Conyers, who later became representative and Congressman Conyers. Martin Luther King came to Detroit because the mother of the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks, asked him to. They had worked together in Montgomery. Dr. King was a young man, just getting his start. The organization of Rosa Parks with the Montgomery bus boycott is what really put Dr. King on the map. Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks was a friend to Malcolm X. She even called him her, he was one of her heroes. Rosa Parks stood amongst giants that they had to look up to. All five foot three inches of her. I just couldn't lay my head to rest without giving mention because least we forget and we have to tell a story. And you all, there's much more to her story. There's many other groups. She worked with the Black Panthers. She worked with so many other groups. She had a name. You know, Rosa Parks wasn't a rich woman, and she did a lot of speaking tours. She gave most of her money away to charitable institutions, including her own foundation. It's Rosa, Rosa Parks, who carries that legacy today? Who's running with that baton? I've often mentioned on this show that Dr. Dorothy Height, in an interview I did with her about 10 years ago, said that she was glad that the civil rights movement happened in her day, in Sister Rosa Parks' day, because she said the thing that's different about today and the people of her day, the people of Rosa Parks' day, is that the people back then knew how to sacrifice. They knew how to sacrifice. That bus boycott that was just initially thought to be a day went on much longer than that. As a matter of fact, they printed 35,000 handbills overnight and had printers like today. Stayed up all night and did it. And they passed them out. 
and that is how people knew. It was about 40,000 black commuters who either walked, got rides with, or got rides with other people. Some students stayed home. Some people stayed away from work. Most of them, they had to go to work. They walked or they got a ride with somebody else. They took a cab. The cab, the black cab drivers in Montgomery, Alabama, only charge the riders during the boycott the same amount of money they would have paid it if they had ridden the bus. They took a loss. They sacrificed. They did that. 40,000 people, and sometimes they had to walk 20 miles. They organized at the Mount Zion AME Zion Church. That's how they started it. Pastors got involved. Citizens got involved. A few community leaders got involved, and they made this happen. See, it doesn't always take hundreds of thousands to start something. It may take hundreds of thousands to make it happen eventually. That boycott lasted for 381 days. We're talking a year plus. Some people would walk 20 miles a day in dedication to the cause. Since 70% of the bus riders in Montgomery, Alabama were black, and with all of them boycotting, imagine the impact, the financial impact they had on the bus company. Needless to say, there were some people who had boycotted, who had had issues with the bus buses before and had a suit before Rosa Parks forced the desegregation legally of the buses. Now, even though those trials were already underway, it is believed that it would have been a totally different outcome had it not been for the bus boycott and Rosa Parks being the catalyst to the modern-day civil rights movement. Rosa Parks. I want to give you another little bit of trivia, though, and I think this is important. Because sometimes when we tell a story, we leave out stuff, and I'm leaving out a lot of stuff, too. And here's a message. Here's a message to live in housing. She took care of her grandmother. She took care of her mother. And later, her health failed. But while Rosa Parks was living in Detroit, living in the housing, someone broke down a door, said that he had chased away a burglar, and then demanded that Rosa Parks give him a reward. Rosa Parks gave him some money. It wasn't enough for him, and he demanded more. And when she refused, she rose apart. She was 5'3", but she was feisty. When she refused, he, he attacked her, hit her in the face. He left, eventually was found, and was given a pretty good beatdown. I'm telling you that story because it was a black man who attacked the mother 
of the civil rights movement, a black man who had rights that he would not have had had it not been for Rosa Parks, a message directly to black people, to African Americans, to people who look like me. Imagine if that would have happened prior to the civil rights movement. Imagine if that would have happened and if it could have taken her out because she moved from that apartment to a more secure apartment eventually, something that she really couldn't afford. It it bothered her. It impacted her. It changed her. Somebody attacked her in her house. We have to treat each other better, whoever we are. Think about how much different things would be today had Rosa Parks not been there. Sister Rosa Louise Parks, the mother of what's called the modern civil rights movement, the catalyst to that movement, someone very important to me. I am thankful I was alive when she was alive. I didn't get a chance to meet her. A friend of mine did. Met her at the hospital, actually. And uh, told me the story of meeting her. You can read about Rosa Parks. And, you know, she, she did write a book. Actually, she wrote two books. And you can read more about her story. You can read more about her, her faith. Because one book was more about her faith. And I and I encourage you all to do that. This is a woman who did things with Fannie Lou Hamer. This is a person who fought for the Wilmington Ten. This is a woman who lived so much in her ninety two years and ninety two years is a long life. But in that 92 years, she lived many generations worth of life. Uh, Go get a book, Rosa Parks, My Story. That's the name of it, Rosa Parks, My Story. So her autobiography. And she had another one called Quiet Strength, which talked about her faith. I want to make sure that I gave you those those book titles. And if you're ever looking for a foundation to give some money to, you know, you we have the big ones, but Rosa Parks had a scholarship foundation, and it was called the Rosa L. Parks Scholarship Foundation. It gives two thousand dollars. Scholarships. 900 applicants have benefited from that. $1.8 million in scholarships. I know we can donate more money to that, to the legacy of Rosa Parks. I know I played Rosa Parks' story in her own words earlier, but I want to close out the show today, this morning, in Rosa Parks' own words. 
one more time for those who may not heard, have heard this, her words at the very beginning. Because this is a giant, and least we forget. So you've been listening to Rosa Parks, the catalyst for the civil rights movement on Our Own Voices Live. Hopefully we'll be back next Saturday at 12.30 p.m., which is our regularly scheduled time. If not before, we may do some shows in between. My name is Rodney Smith, and I'm very happy to have brought you this story today. And please share it with someone, not just so I can get some more listeners, because I really believe we have to tell the stories. That's how we keep them alive, because we might forget the stories. See you next week. And here's Sister Rosa Parks in her own words. December 1st, 1955, about 6 o'clock in the afternoon, I boarded the bus downtown Montgomery on Coates Square. As the bus proceeded out of town on the third stop, the white passengers had filled the front of the bus. When I got on the bus, the Rear was filled with uh, colored passengers, and they were beginning to stand. The seat I occupied was the face of the seat where the Negro passengers uh, take as they on this route. The driver noted that the front of the bus was filled with white passengers, and there would be of two or three men standing, he looked back and asked that the seat where I had taken, along with three other persons, one in the seat with me and two across the aisle was seated, he demanded the seat that we were occupying. The other passengers very reluctantly gave up their seats, but I refused to do so. I want to make very certain that it is understood that I have not taken a seat in the white section as has been reported in many cases. An article came out in the newspaper on Friday morning about the Negro woman overlooked segregation. She was seated in the front seat, the white section of the bus, and refused to take a seat in the rear of the bus. That was the first newspaper account. The seat where I occupied, we were in the custom of taking this seat on the way home even though at times on this on the same bus route, we occupied the same seat with white standing if their space had been taken up, the seats had been taken up. I was very much surprised that the driver at this point demanded that I remove myself from the seat. The driver said that if I refused to leave the seat, he would have to call the police, and I told him, just call the police. He then called the officers of the law. They came and placed me under arrest. Violation of the segregation law of the city and state of Alabama and transportation. I didn't think I was violating any. I felt that I was not being treated right and that I had a right to retain the seat that I had taken as a passenger on the bus. The time had just come when I had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. They placed me under arrest, and I wasn't afraid. I don't know why I wasn't, but I didn't feel afraid. I I had 
decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen, even in Montgomery, Alabama. And I was born, bailed out shortly after the arrest. The trial was held December 5th on the next Monday, and the protest began from that day, and it is still continuing. And so the case was appealed. From the time of the arrest on Thursday night and Friday and Saturday and Sunday, the word had gotten around over Montgomery of, of my arrest because of this uh, incident. There were telephone calls from those who knew about it to others. The ministers were very much interested in it, and we had our meetings in the churches. And being the minority, we felt that nothing could be gained by violence or threats or belligerent attitude. We believe that more could be accomplished through the nonviolent passive resistance. And people just began to decide that they wouldn't uh, ride the bus on the day of my trial, which was uh, Monday, December 5th. And Monday morning, when the buses were out on their regular run, they remained empty and People were walking or getting rides in cars with people who would pick them up as best they could. On Monday night, the mass meeting at the Hope Street Baptist Church had been called, and there were many thousands of people there. They kept coming, and some people never did get in the church. There were so many. I was not the only person who had been mistreated and humiliated I have uh, been refused uh, entrance on the buses because I would not pay my fare at the front and go around to the rear door to enter. That was the custom if the bus was crowded up to the point where the white passengers would start occupying. I hadn't thought that I would be the person to do this. It hadn't occurred to me. Others had gone through the same experience, some even worse experience than mine, and they all felt that the time had come that they should decide that we would have to stop supporting the bus company until we were given better service. And the first day of remaining off the bus had been so successful, it was organized then that uh, we wouldn't uh, ride the bus until our request had been granted.